This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Stick Together, and Stick Together and 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations as the true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land that we broadcast from. We pay our respects to their elders past and present, and recognize that we live and work on unceded land. Welcome to Stick Together. I'm your host, James Brennan. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode, and I want to Uh, extend my thank you to Community Broadcasting Foundation and to 3CR for their support in us being able to put on this show each week. Now the episode that I'm playing to you today is a continuation from the interview that I um, broadcast last month with David Spratt and Jacob Grech that was uh, on the 20th anniversary of the Valentine's Day peace protest. Uh, But this interview is focusing a little bit more on today and what has kind of changed for organizing today and some of the challenges that might be come about in trying to organize something similar today. So I really hope that you enjoy the interview and I will speak to you soon. Um, leading leading up to the war, um, the anti-war sentiment in Australia was very strong. I remember the age in the middle of January uh, of that year, and remember the war actually started on the I think the twenty first of March. The age ran a poll and gave it half of the front page of, a, of, of the broadsheet, where it showed that ninety percent of Australians were uh, uh, opposed to the war without a UN mandate, which was never going to happen. And John Howard actually had to cut short his holidays and come and come back to work to try and fight because the war was 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 hugely unpopular uh, before uh, it occurred. Um, I mean, it was a long bit to think that George Howard would break the U.S. alliance and not uh, and not pres- uh, go with George Bush into this war. But I think the the level of the opposition to the war has meant that uh, since then governments have been a bit wary about that sort of commitment. Uh, James, the other in- interesting event on the day um, was in as in the normal case of events, there was police liaison about the event and how big it was going to be and you know we told the police that we were expecting a hundred thousand people plus and i don't think they quite accepted it and as people poured out of uh the train stations and all over melbourne but particularly the train station opposite um uh the state library there were jams of people not being able to get up the steps and bill della who was doing our police liaison at literally five minutes to five, when there was already 100,000 people on the street, had a panic phone call from the chief uh, uh, person in charge of the uh, uh, of the police force saying, things are out of control, you've got to call the rally off. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is not a safe environment. And we said, no, war's not a safe environment too, but uh, uh, an interesting moment. Well, I wonder now if we can kind of shift a little bit onto talking um, you know, I guess the events and, and you know, the peace movement sort of after this weekend and then leading up to today and sort of reflecting on, um, you know, I guess where things are at. I wanted to start, I remember, you know, I've heard Scott Ludlam use the phrase before that the kind of failure of the anti-war ripped the heart out of the peace movement. I don't know, to me, that really summed up these protests were so inspiring for people that um, were a part of them and, and you know, came to these events. And, and like you said, there was an overwhelming 
opposition to the war. What happened, you know, from that, we weren't able to stop the war. I wonder if you guys could, you know, just start kind of, I guess, reflecting on, you know, um, I don't know, would you call it a failure? Look, I think I think Scott's being a bit harsh because the peace movement was dead before these wars. It, it had already died, apart from a few anti-nuclear activists and anti-militarism activists, but very small. So, so the rallies didn't kill off the peace movement because it was already dead before before this period. So, I think he's I think he's being harsh. Uh, I mean, uh, politics is is a case of opportunity. Sometimes, I mean, you can you can mobilize large numbers of people uh, chaotically, spontaneously, informally when the external circumstances are correct, which is what we did. Uh, did we stop the war? No. Um, did we have some successes? Yes. I think we really put a, a, a dent in, in, in the pro-war um, uh, sentiment in conservative circles, and they've never been so keen on it ever more. I mean, one of the things we did was we got some, um, some eminent Australian international law experts together, and they issued a, an opinion that if Australia or the Australian Air Force carried out certain actions in Iraq as part of this attack, then these lawyers would uh, would think that Australian service people could be taken to the Hague for war crimes charges. And, and we know that that severely restricted the uh, modus operandi of the Australian Air Force yeah. in, in Iraq. That They go off on a bombing mission and then they'd say, oh, look, there's a school next door, we better uh, pull out. And I was told that more Australian bombing missions were aborted than completed. So, I mean, I don't think it was a complete failure. I think it, it really affected the way uh, Australia operated. I mean, objectively, how it was likely to go to war, we didn't stop it. That, that Yes, that was a failure. Um, but knowing that that was likely to happen, what was the other option? Not to do anything. Just on that thing about the Australian Air Force, it even got to the point that the US Air Force was not requesting and not allowing Australian assistance in its, raid, in its raids because of the difference in responsibility between the USAF and the RAAF. And um, in the RAAF, the captain of every plane was personally responsible for the decisions that they made, which was not the case, arguably, in the United States. So Australian pilots had to write, as David said, to more were aborted than than completed because they could see that they weren't military targets. And we brought that. Look, for me, I feel like while I wouldn't go as far as Scott and say it ripped the heart out of it, it was a, it, it was disappointing. I mean, I guess in the back of my mind, without even thinking about it, you know, by the time of that rally, I'd been a peace activist for 20-odd years. There's always been this axiomatic thing that if only you could get enough people on the streets. And that just showed, I think what we showed was that the Australian government is not a democratic institution, that it doesn't answer to the Australian people. Now, a lot of the left, a lot of activists, a lot of people knew that intrinsically or even viscerally. But what this showed was that we had an Australian government that was not answerable to the Australian people and they couldn't hide that. And without us organising those peace rallies, without the peace rallies taking place, without all the all the people who never went to rallies apart from that one going along, they could still hide behind the fact that they were doing it with the blessing and on behalf of the Australian people. I think what we showed was we forced John Howard to show his hand and say, I don't give a shit what the Australian people think. This is what we're doing anyway. And mm. and count that as a success. James, I think, 
I mean, I, I think the other thing is, and we talked about this uh, earlier, is that John Howe could get away with it because the Labor Party in Canberra was not going to provide a sustained critique of Australia's involvement in the war. If you can imagine you had a circumstance in Canberra where Howe was going to the war, was going to war, and the Simon Crean-led opposition were just grabbing all the evidence that was coming out about how disastrous this, this war was. There were no weapons of mass destruction, you know, mayhem and destruction everywhere, um, Abu Ghraib, uh, I mean, uh, war crimes. If, if the Labor Party in Canberra, and as an organisation, parliamentary and extra-parliamentary, had been prepared to to hold the blowtorch to Howard, he wouldn't have got away with it in quite the same way. So it was Labor's acquiescence in the war that made it more difficult for the for the for the for the mobilization. I wonder then, you know, do we need to really rethink how we measure success on the left from, you know, what you've both said? And and, you know, I guess I've just taken, you know, the kind of very big sort of picture thing. We had protests to end the war, war didn't end you know, not successful, but you've spoken about a lot of successes within that. And I think, you know, it, you know, maybe that's the disheartening of, you know, being an activist for a long time means that it can feel like, well, we didn't end capitalism today either, you know, and tomorrow it's still here. How do we measure the success within that, you know, the framework within that to sustain ourselves and to build upon the movement? People become engaged in politics by what they do, not what they think. And this is one of the problems with social media-driven politics. And you can sit in your bedroom and click a box and say that, you know, you're doing political organising. You're not. You're just clicking a box and giving money to somebody else. I mean, a mass of people in various ways, and there were another three or four rallies of 50,000 people each in the two or three months after this event. It didn't stop on that day. I mean, we went on till May for another three months. I mean, I come across people today because I've done some work in the past in organising in the Palestinian Muslim and, and Arab communities, uh, young people who are in that, young people who are now 40 or 45 saying, that rally was the first time I ever got active. And and the things I did with my friends at university around that rally really led me in into much greater social awareness, awareness and political activism. And I mean, and this is the great the great joy and, and benefit of organising. It's not just what happens with the, with the outcome on the day, but it's the people who get engaged and become more active and aware and 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 find a path to express themselves through through, through organising that, that echoes on and on. And I, I continue to come across people who are saying, that was the first big political experience for me and I'll always remember it. So, you know, the... There's a good story as well, mm. and I dare say, James, that that not that rally, but the um, the campaign against Australia going to war in Afghanistan and Iraq would have been uh, some sort of catalyst to get you involved twenty odd years ago. Yeah, definitely it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I wonder if you know we're kind of shifting to talk about you know what what is here today for the anti-war movement, and I guess you know how you think um, the kind of organising that you guys were involved in for that that period of time and the Valentine's Day sort of protest weekend. How do you think that would look today? I mean, obviously, you know, there are war continues. We've got, you know, I guess, a you know, kind of a proxy war in the Ukraine, which, you know, is really about kind of great power politics and, you know, still about some of the same kind of things of imperialism and all that kind of stuff. Yet there doesn't seem the same kind of sentiment for people to kind of get out on the street and protest about that or to, um, you know, kind of put some of these things into real action as opposed to the kind of things you spoke about. I can't imagine being able to pull off an event like that today, to be quite honest. 
Um, I mean, as we've spoken about earlier, this was just at the dawn of digital organising. So there were primitive email lists, but there was no social media. There were no apps to raise money with or anything else. So it was still on the ground organising. I mean, the Victorian Peace Network was essentially, and I want to compare this to the way organising is done today, it was decentralised, it was informal, it was a bit chaotic, and it was relatively spontaneous. We did not have DGR uh, tax deductibility status. We didn't have insurance. We didn't even have a bank account. We mobilised, you know, a quarter million people. We didn't even have a bank account. I mean, this was spontaneous, uh, minimalist organising with maximum uh, power uh, to to the people um, out there wherever they were and, and to do their own thing. If you look at the forms of political organising today, by and large, uh, without being too blanket, um, a lot of the forms of organising now are by professional non-government organisations, professional campaigning organisations who are not democratic, who have self-reproducing boards, who um, are very concerned with their brand, with their numbers, with their fundraising and have organisational structures where the communications people who, you know, sort of act like fascists sometimes uh, are higher up the organisational chain than the campaigners. So these these are this is brand organising and campaigning, a lot of it ineffective, and I think making a serious mistake in believing that social social media organising is actually making people act. When in fact, I mean, there's good evidence to the contrary. Past a certain point, the the more people engage in social media, the more time they spend on social media, uh, particularly when they're young. Um, the greater their alienation, the poorer their self-image and the more mental health problems they have. So I think we've got a, a predominant mode of organising now, uh, which which is really almost the antithesis of what, of what VPN did. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think the second thing is that the idea of common purpose is much more complex now. The idea that you can put aside differences to agree on one task and all do it together is something I think would be very difficult to negotiate in today's political climate. Absolutely. Um, just on that, on a, if I could touch on a couple of points, you know, David, I remember being dismayed 20 and something years ago when a lot of our organisations um, and unions started being run by lawyers rather than people working their way from the from the ground up. But we got to a point now where so many of them, of them aren't even run by lawyers anymore they're run by marketing graduates and um and a big part of and look it's got to do with the whole of i, I guess the tightness of, of, of society um money is at is at a premium resources are at a premium so me at you know friends of bendigo park by, which is just where i happen to be sitting at the moment it's not what i'm a member of um would be competing with other organizations i'm I'm aware of I'm aware of this with what my one of the campaigns one of my kids is involved in. They're they're competing with other organisations for a limited amount of resources coming not just out of the government but but out of the community. So so there's that. But that has in a way led to the a lot of organisations being how could I put it? Well, David put it well. A lack of common purpose because it's there's more a there's more competition, but then. The fact that there's more competition has meant that a lot of organisations are now branding their campaigns and the fact that you're branding their campaigns leads to less common purpose because the 
people wanting to save the turtles don't want to be seen with the people who want to save the bilbies, for argument's sake. It's mm. it's a side issue. But on the, on the bigger international framework, that's happening as well. I mean, I once said, because I spent a lot of time in the climate movement, when I looked at all the NGOs uh, involved in the climate movement, they remind me of cereal boxes in a supermarket, um, all with the same thing inside, but with different packaging on the outside saying, buy, buy me, not the wheat bex next door. Uh, and I think that's the problem. And these 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 product differences, uh, you know, you, you get 10 emails from different organisations all saying support me who who claim to have common purpose is is actually, you know, putting the tail, the tail before the head. I think, you know, it's definitely been a really like a big commodification of the environmental movement itself. And, um, you know, the big campaign groups that are involved in, in all of that. Uh, that you know, like that you're alluding to before, both of you, and um, you know, Naomi Klein has has written quite a lot on on that kind of um, building cycle of you know those kind of groups just continuing to kind of push through and not necessarily have the change they want. But that's not necessarily the case in the peace and anti-war movement. So, is there a space for you know a group like VPN to emerge from that kind of space? And you know, I don't. There hasn't been that kind of same, you know grouping and commodification that in, that the climate movement's had. So is there a space there? Well, my well, guess would be, uh, Jacob knows more about this than me, my guess would be that it's very hard to mobilise large number of people in Australia on peace issues if there isn't a direct Australian involvement. I mean, there's really good ongoing work on nuclear weapons and there's a, 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 you know, a new treaty that's been put up by Pacific Nations that's now putting a squeeze on Australian politicians. But... I mean, the reasons you've had big mobilisations in the past around the peace movement is because Australian lads and our women are going to get shot. I mean, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. If if there's not direct Australian involvement, it's a different it's it's different mathematics. Yeah, and look, I think it's probably um, also want to mention the elephant in the room, and that's identity politics um, is stopping people forming broader networks at the same time and um, and fearful. Like, I mean, there was just a big peace conference in Melbourne last year, in, not in Melbourne, in Canberra last year, National Peace Conference. Ukraine wasn't on the agenda. And I asked a question, how can we have a peace conference last November with Ukraine? Not only not being the central focus of what we're discussing, but not being on the agenda. Um, and because no one could come together, like people couldn't come together about a line about about Ukraine. It's now impossible to have a discussion. And I've tried through various, I won't mention the organisation, but through various left groupings to say, can we just sit down and discuss this? Discuss what's going on. And it's like, no, is the short answer. So I guess, and, um, you know, sorry, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Well, I guess just thinking about, you know, that we spoke at the start um, of these discussions around the involvement of Trades Hall and the and the trade union movement. And, you know, from what you're saying there about identity politics and, you know, generally something really lacking from identity politics is, you know, class and class politics and, yeah. um, you know, that understanding of how those things are intersected with each other. Yes. So, you know, is that, is that where the issue kind of is? Because I, I can't personally imagine um the trade union movement coming so wholeheartedly behind something like like this either yes well i mean the fact was in at the time of of, of vpn uh, the trade store secretary was a guy called, called uh lee hubbard and if i use a majority term who wasn't a labor party hack and who really emphasized 
the relationship between the trade union and broader community struggles, that the, 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 the community organisations and trade unions could make common purpose. So trade law had been very big in, in, you know, in participating in, 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 in the refugee mobilisations and so on, even though it wasn't a strict labour issue. And so Lee had a, a very different view, and I think that infused what was going on. I mean, yeah. these days with declining trade union uh, membership and also... Uh, declining Labor Party membership, it seems to me that the trade union movement has in many ways, particularly in a political as opposed to a, an industrial sense, been reduced to being an electoral arm of the Labor Party. That's what Trades Hall is there for, organising, you know, phone calls and 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 and, and so on. So the, I think that the, the, the non-industrial role of the, of the labour movement has been almost completely transformed and it has withdrawn from a, a lot of this stuff. Yes, ab ab absolute, ab absolutely. Um, to the point where, um, you know, a May Day rally was pulled out of a few years back because it interfered with the electioneering campaign for an election that was happening in May um, to show the different priorities the way priorities have shifted over the over the ensuing twenty or seventeen years, it was it was at that stage, and also because um, because identity politics has taken such a strong hold um, in Australia, they are now the issues, and I think there's a whole lot of reasons for that. You know, neoliberalism being one, but also I think because again, like Scott Ludlam said, we didn't stop the war, and he said the heart was torn out of it. Um, I never heard that, but I'll take your word for it. Um, people feel incapable of working on the bigger picture. So they want to work on smaller pictures and the pictures have got smaller and smaller and smaller to around individual rights. Yeah, individual, as you say, I mean, you know, the, the, the broad decline of the left and, and the understanding of, of class and the role of the state and, and power and so on. Has really, um, has, has really changed things. Imagine, imagine, for example, just imagine, for example, the kind of backlash um, any peace movement organisation would get wanting to call, you know, suppose Australia sent troops to Ukraine and there was big public support for mobilisation against that, just suppose that happened sometime in the future, or even against Russia. I mean, you know, we've already had the, the head of the armed of the defence committee in the UK Parliament calling for a direct confrontation with Russia. Things that things could escalate quickly. But suppose we had a similar sort of framework of of a um, of a sent anti-war sentiment in Australia. Could you imagine the backlash if we called on um, the Catholic Church with all the stuff that's been going on about the Catholic Church? Could you imagine the backlash between the U but of, of getting the unions involved from some of the environmental organisations? The backlash from this mob against that mob. I mean, we we had a mobilize. We, we've got a mobilisation against um, funding the war in Ukraine happening next week in Washington, which has already a week before it fallen apart because this mob didn't want that mob to speak, and this mob didn't want that mob to speak, and so now the main people they are, we're going to have speaking aren't actually speaking, and the main organisations they had supporting it are no longer supporting it it could have been a huge rally but it's not it's going to be a tiny rally james i wonder if there's another thing as well and this has got to do with the very nature of organizing itself i mean if, it's ironic that i mean in the in the history of the left and the progressive forces you look at, at america i mean face-to-face -face, suburb by suburb organizing 
was the key during the 20th century for trade unions, for 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 mm. for for black politics in America. I mean, all that stuff about you know housing rights and you know and wages and so on was one by one talking, organising. You know, really fantastic grassroots person on person organising, and and in Australia. And I mean, you know, the understanding was that that people became involved and committed in politics by acting not by reading and, and writing and talking it was it was the it was it was the action of people uh, working together with other people feeling that power getting out doing things collectively to, together uh, that made a difference and that has drifted away in 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 the digital world and you know suddenly we have an interesting revelation where the greens i mean from when adam bam was successful i mean adam bam was successful because he applied a really old-fashioned idea. He got a whole lot of people and he door-knocked his whole electorate and people did face-to-face stuff again and it worked. And that's why the Greens won four to three seats in Brisbane. They did mass person-to-person, eyeball to eyeball, actually having a conversation, talking, uh, politics. And now, you know, uh, the bigger parties will connect on and say, oh, it's all about, you know, talking to people, meaningful one-by-one conversations. But in fact, that's not the way most political organising is, is is done now. It's it's this uh, too much. It is this digital arrangement where the 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 person you're you're trying to um, engage is in a passive, uh, commodified relationship with the organisation that's organising them. I think you know we saw a big uh, part of that in the US with Obama and then Sanders and those kind of campaigns. And I think you know those kind of democratic organising techniques were kind of bought over here and used in Labor and the Greens. And and then you know I think had quite big success with the so-called teal candidates with that yeah. kind of community um, engaging and like you said the face-to-face sort of organizing um you know Talking perhaps to your neighbors turning up to public meetings actually having mm. conversations actually showing some collective power walking down the street hanging outside with banners all those crazy old-fashioned ideas well perhaps yeah. um you know it's not depending on where your kind of politics lie it's a bit unfortunate that they've all sort of landed within the parliamentary sort of political sphere and, and it still seems to be you know i don't know if, if you know, people are kind of capturing that for the kind of broader, you know, left movements as such. And um, but yeah, I think that those things are definitely um, really effective. Look, I think you know we've we've had a we we'll probably keep talking for a lot on, on all of this um, because it's something that you know I think we're all kind of really interested in. And there's a lot of questions that are, are really left lingering that um, you know it's hard to kind of really really answer. But I, I'm sure that listeners are, are really going to enjoy listening to. This discussion because it is something that has did shape I think a lot of people's activism over the last 20 years that it was a real key moment um, not just the Valentine's Day protest but the protests in and around that weekend and that movement that really shaped uh, a lot of people's thinking and you know probably a lot of those people who are working in comms you know those organizations were at those protests and shaped by it as well. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, David and Jacob, for joining the discussion today. And I really appreciate taking the time to reflect and, um, you know, think about some great actions that you're both involved in. Thanks, James. Thank you, James. Thanks for listening to another episode of Stick Together. I've been your host, James Brennan. Thanks to our guests today, David Spratt and Jacob Grech. And also thank you to the Community Broadcasting Foundation and to 3CR for their ongoing support. If you want to catch up on any other episodes of Stick Together, go to wherever you normally listen to podcasts or go to the 3CR website. Until next time, stick together.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.